Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tom's good to be back. I'm yeah, nursing you, my cold. You missed the cold. <laughs> nursing a head cold, but I missed the yeah. missed the Pierre breakfast. I'm we sorry. had a, a, a breakfast at the Pierre Hotel with an amazing turnout. I, uh, we've given the snow on Fifth Avenue. Pim Fox, Yeoman's Duty. Yes, his Gura called in from. What do you have? Like eight feet of snow in Brooklyn, the kale. <laughs> you were out there brushing Shoveling all day, brushing snow off the kale yeah, bushes, yeah. right? Luckily, the crop is hard. Um, <laughs> this is this is a great uh, a pleasure and privilege, folks. Abby Joseph Cohen. Uh, has uh, had decades of work, not only for the CFA Institute and for the academics of finance and investment, for her Goldman Sachs as well. She, she puts it, it's a Goldman Sachs retirement, which means she will be exceptionally active in her 80-hour work week, <laughs> still with Goldman Sachs. What kind of retirement, when Steve Strongen talks to you about a Goldman Sachs retirement, what is that exactly, Abby? Tom, what that basically means is I'm becoming an advisory director, and I'm giving up my managerial and administrative responsibilities, but I am still senior investment strategist. I'll be working with our clients around the world, and our clients include governments, uh, not just here in the United States, but but also in, in various places. I just, had, I just had a thought, David, that, that maybe Mr. Cohn is a little occupied uh, in yeah. Washington. <laughs> Abby Joseph Cohen could go down and help Gary Cohn, help the president of the United States, and be that much closer to her beloved Washington <laughs> capitals. Yeah. Let, let, let me just point out I'm not related uh, to Gary Cohn. Oh, that would be good. Um, <laughs> but, but Tom is right that I am a big fan of the Washington capitals. So that would be a good work on Abby, optimism is easy when there's a bear market. Market. There has not been when you've been a resilient bull at Dow 21,000. Can you stay optimistic on the development of cash flow? Uh, Tom, I think the issue right now is more murky uh, than usual because the fundamentals are good, including the cash flow data. The economy is growing. We had some acceleration coming into 2017. Labor markets are stronger. Wages are, in fact, rising, running about 25 to 3% year-on-year growth. The question really becomes the overlay of government policy. And as everybody knows and you have focused on so well, there is no clarity uh, in terms of what those new policies will look like. We have some idea of what the president indicated he would like to do during the campaign, but we, now we, of course, need to see what the legislation looks like, what will the Congress pass, uh, and when will it be implemented? Some of the things that many investors are hoping for, uh, including changes in the tax code, may be delayed quite a while uh, while the Congress gets its act together in terms of actually putting things down on paper. Yeah, what's your sense of the the timetable here? We had the president saying yesterday we're going to get a, uh, in his words, phenomenal 
uh, tax plan here in the next few weeks. Uh, he said, uh, you mentioned the, the legislative wrangling that's, that's sure to follow. Uh, how, what, what's the timetable look like to you, and, and how important is that to you as an investor sort of waiting to see these things? March is an important month because that's the point at which the president, the new administration, will release for the first time their draft of a budget. However, we then will go into what does the Congress do with it? Um, my colleagues uh, in Goldman Sachs Investment Research believe that even if something is passed by the end of 2017, important pieces of it won't be implemented until next year. You know, I, I we, we hear so much about regulatory reform, uh, both in financial services, but also uh, with the Affordable Care Act. How much of how much is that affecting sort of your your outlook, the the prospect there of of saying scaling back Todd Frank, for instance? We're not quite sure what will happen. Um, obviously, there has been a notable increase in the price levels of financial services stocks, as many people are anticipating a less uh, onerous uh, regulatory environment. Let me point out and say that some regulation is very good regulation because it protects us, whether it's financial services, the FDA, and many of the environmental regs uh, as well. So it really depends upon which regulations are being changed. The other thing that everyone is looking for are the adjustments to the ACA. Um, it now looks like in Congress, there's not very much appetite for repeal uh, well in advance of replace. And there's not yet a plan that has come forward. We're hearing that there are four separate plans uh, that are being discussed by the Republicans in Congress. It's not really clear to us which way the Congress will decide to go. What do we know of the, the potential economic ramifications of a repeal or replacement or a you know, <laughs> pick your reword to <laughs> to put in there. But how would that affect the economy? One thing that I believe is not being uh, adequately discussed is that this period of confusion about what will happen to uh, the ACA is actually a dampener for consumer spending. Many of the families that were most benefited by Obamacare are middle-income families, uh, and these are people who don't qualify for Medicaid. Uh, they're not able to afford their insurance without help, and it may in fact be these middle-income Americans uh, who are most afflicted. They may get nervous. Uh, they may begin to uh, spend less, save more and obviously spend more on medical uh, expenses rather than other items. You'll forgive us for being a little retrospective here as you announce your, your retirement, but looking back, if you, has there been a moment it's like this? Goldman it's a Goldman Sachs retirement. It's not like a John Tucker <laughs> retirement. John Tucker <laughs> retirement is here's the door. What's your hurry? Abby, will you adopt me, please? <laughs> <laughs> uh, have we seen a moment like this, though, where politics has been as big a driver as it seems to be right now? Is it providing as much uncertainty or driver uh, as you see it? Um, clearly, this is the most that we have seen in many decades. I think uh, if we go back over history, and Tom and I love to reminisce because of our CFA backgrounds, uh, the 1930s would have been a period uh. where politics had an enormous impact. Yeah. Uh, there was also uh, a period uh, when there was the big re-shifting of uh, political parties uh, in the 1960s and early 70s as a consequence of the Democrats um, uh, moving forward on things like uh, yeah. uh, voting rights and civil rights and so on. Uh, but this is certainly the biggest change that we have seen yeah. uh, in several decades. Now that we have a Goldman Sachs retirement, maybe she can go on the short, short list for the new chair of the Fed here and here, too. Not that I would want to start any speculation or rumors. We'll continue with Abby Joseph Cohen. And speak of global central banks, of course, with Mr. Abe visiting uh, today, uh, we'll, we'll talk to Abby about not only 
global central banks, but of course the Federal Reserve System. David Gurr and Tom Keen with Abby Joseph Cohen. This uh, moment in time after a storied career in management at Goldman Sachs, she moves on to an advisory role, makes very clear it's a Goldman Sachs retirement, which is, I think she gets to expand from 70 hours a week to 72. So we should add way, way too, too young to retire. Yes. How kind yes. of you. Sean First thing Tucker. I said to her, I said, is it, are you okay? You didn't she say said, that already fine. to her? I just, I don't know. You On know, TV, this I'm is sure the year said, for the Washington I'm sure Capitals. Said that. <laughs> she probably went to Lloyd and said, Lloyd, I got to see more Ovechkin. Uh. I mean, it's probably what happened. Uh, Abby, I want to get to the Fed. And David Brooks has a great single sentence today, among all that's going on in Washington. He doesn't have to begin each day by making enemies, says Mr. Brooks in the New York Times. Is Chair Yellen President Trump's enemy? Based upon public commentary, it's a little hard to tell. Um, clearly, he made some unpleasant comments during the campaign, but has been more quiet recently. I believe that the Federal Reserve's independence is crucial to its success and therefore the success of the U.S. economy. One of the things I'm concerned about are movements in the Congress. For example, Senator Paul has indicated he would like the Fed's decisions to be audited. Yeah. Um, and I think to have somebody at the General Accounting Office second-guess the uh, dedicated staff at the Fed on policy yeah. changes is not a good idea. Maybe you can answer this question because I couldn't answer it myself and I can't find somebody to answer it for me. <laughs> We're all becoming expert on Budamin and Guantanamo, Cuba, Ninth Circuit Court, all this law. Does the judicial process intrude in any threat to central bank independence? Not to my knowledge. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I believe that what we're all getting um, over the last few days is a terrific lesson in civics. Yeah. And dare I say it, some members of the administration are receiving that lesson as well. But as a nation, our knowledge of basic civics has declined in recent decades. When Sandra Day O'Connor retired from the Supreme Court, this was her number one focus. She developed something called iCivics, which was an online curriculum, which is now, as I understand it, being used in half of the junior high schools throughout the United States. Yeah, it's a huge deal, David. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the dollar as well. Obviously, that is something that Donald Trump has been paying attention to and talking about, or at least uh, tweeting about. Where do you see the, the dollar headed, and, and what do you make of uh, the tweets, of the, of the reports that he's calling up uh, General Mike Flynn to ask sort of what's better, a stronger dollar, a weaker dollar? Is this an administration that understands currency flux? He called Abby last Exactly. I think most market participants understand that there are pros and cons yeah. of a strong dollar. Uh, a strong dollar, all other things being equal, suggests that there's confidence uh, in the United States, especially relative to other nations, because the dollar is a relative price. On the other hand, a strong currency all by itself uh, is uh, something that could could impede um, export growth. The United States, however, is not as sensitive to a strong currency as other nations would be, because so much of what we export is high-value-added goods and services, not all that, that price-dependent. You know, this is critical. This goes down to terms of trade. I mean, this is just absolutely critical that a third-world agricultural single-product nation can't really be compared in FX dynamics to a high-value-added U.S., right? That's exactly... We do it every day. Uh, that's exactly right, Tom. The other thing that's very different about the U.S. is that our dollar is the 
main currency. It is the reserve currency, and it is the safe haven currency in this world. Whenever something goes wrong, including in the United States, there's a rush of foreign capital into the U.S. Um, and we have to understand that there are large amounts of reserves sitting around the world. Um, the two largest holders outside the U.S., China and Japan, and we have seen that China has been reducing uh, its level of reserves of U.S. dollars, as interestingly, they have been trying to manipulate their currency, but manipulating it to the upside, not to the downside. Abby, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming in. Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs, and not enough market talk there for those that want to know what Abby thinks about uh, the S&P 500, but certainly there was a sense of caution versus Outright bullishness. She may have more time to join us in the future. Yeah, Could well, we come back. <laughs> maybe she, 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 she can. Can she do traffic? Uh, yes, particularly in Queens. There we Queens. go. <laughs> now your Queens traffic report. They, they, did they plow Queens? Yeah, exactly. uh, they did very late last night. Oh, very late, four boy. in the morning. Very good. Abby Joseph Cohen with Goldman Sachs. Thank you. Greg Villiers of Horizon. Greg, um, eight ways to go here. It's just been an extraordinary 24 hours for all of us and our president. The certitude of his tweet last night assumes we vault to the Supreme Court. I have seen it this morning alone. Three or four experts say uh, maybe not. What is the path from the Ninth Circuit Court? And to begin the discussion, why don't they just go to a larger appeals court decision? Well, I think you're right. Good morning, Tom. I think that uh, if, the, if he's going to lose on the Supreme Court with a 4-4 to tie, which would uphold the Ninth Circuit, or loses 5-3 to in the Supreme Court, he, he doesn't like to lose. So I think the White House now is considering other options. Maybe they modify the immigration yeah. ban. Maybe they seek another court. So all of a sudden, that's a little cloudy. Within this, in the greeting today and all the emotion of the Prime Minister of Japan visiting Arlington and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, folks, the 21 steps, the, 20, the, the salute, the 21-second pause uh, by the, uh, the, uh, the, the officers and enlisted people there at the tomb, within the drama in the picture is chaos. What is the part of the cacophony, Greg, that you're focused on right now? Well, I'm going to be contrarian this morning with you, Tom. I, I think that they do things like this masterfully. It'll be well orchestrated. There's going to be talk of Japanese jobs coming to the U.S. They, they won't talk about currency issues. They're going to play golf this weekend. It'll be labeled as a success. This guy, for all of his flaws, for this horrible week he's had, can still manipulate the news cycle and brand himself brilliantly. Let me ask you about this phone call that we, we heard about last night, uh, President Trump calling Chinese President Xi Jinping, reaffirming the U.S. commitment to the One China policy. Greg, what precipitated this, and how important is it that the president made that call? I think it's a big deal, David, and it shows once again he can manipulate the news cycle for the financial markets. This really alleviates fears of a U.S.-China trade war. It's a good story, just like Japanese 
uh, jobs are a good story, just like his talk yesterday about tax cuts is good. So he knows how to push the right buttons to change the subject when the subject gets pretty ugly, like it did yesterday. You mentioned the symbolism that we'll see today uh, at Arlington, at the White House. Uh, How about in the budget? Are we going to see a budget from this White House that's going to be replete with a lot of symbolism? And we've heard about cuts to the National Endowment of the Arts, National Endowment for the Humanities, etc. Small budget line items, but uh, as I said, replete with symbolism. Is that what you're expecting when we get that document? It's going to be an epic battle. It will it will far, far surpass the fights we had with Ronald Reagan and his budget. The cuts he will propose will be enormous. Defense will get a boost, but everything else, I think, would get a severe cut. And, of course, he's now going to start talking about taxes. We've got a long way to go on yeah. that, but he he will start talking about that as well. Uh, Greg, I know on the short list, David Gura can barely – he had to be medicated yesterday. The kale council <laughs> yeah, will be yes. cut back. Yes, I'm up, I'm up, for, chairman. I'm up for chairman of that. <laughs> yeah. uh, Greg, thank you so much for perspective. I, you know, I think I said last time, Greg, it can't get crazier. Well, guess what, folks? It did last night. It was extraordinary. Greg Vallier with Horizon. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. This is the most important interview of the day for all of you across America and worldwide. Noah Feldman in moments from Harvard University and Harvard Law with careful, non-political, non-angled discussion of what we observed in American history uh, yesterday. He's our most valuable player since January 20th. Noah Feldman has brought clarity to the complexity of American law. Noah, let me start with the announcement, and everybody's punted this thing to death You go back to 1866, Daniel Day-Lewis saved the day for Abraham Lincoln late in 1865, a tragic assassination. And then in Milligan, we pick up the story of what we observed yesterday in San Francisco. Why does a Ninth Circuit court care about Milligan of 1866? The reason is that after Lincoln's death, the federal government kept on trying to use the same military courts that Lincoln himself had put into place during the Civil War against civilians, including civilians who were seen as having been sympathetic to the Southern cause. And Lambden P. Milligan was just such a person, a Southern Democrat, and he was put on trial uh, for his life in a military court despite being a civilian. And the Supreme Court said, no. It was a landmark decision holding that the criminal courts are open, and if they are open, then they have to be used to try civilians. The President of the United States is not the commander-in-chief, ultimately, of the country. He's the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. And in this instance, the court struck down the use of the military courts. And then you move to 2008 with a sitting Judge Anthony Kennedy... And this is Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, where the court said to President Bush what they said basically to President Trump yesterday. Discuss, is it Boumediene? Exactly, yeah, Boumediene, yeah. Discuss that case. So in, so in the Boumediene case, which is the last, the culminating case of the Guantanamo Bay cases, 
Congress, with the signature of the president, had officially said the basic right of habeas corpus just doesn't apply to the detainees in Guantanamo. They're there. They can be tried by a military tribunal, and the courts don't get to review the tribunal what the tribunal did. And Justice Kennedy, writing for a majority of the Supreme Court, said, more or less, I'm quoting here, it's not up to Congress and the president to treat the Constitution like an on-off switch. The Constitution is there, and therefore we're going to apply the Constitution, even in Guantanamo Bay, which, lest we've forgotten, isn't actually part of the United States. But Justice Kennedy says we're going to treat it as though it is in order to make the point that nobody is outside the reach of the Constitution, and the court gets to say that. And as you say, that's exactly what the Ninth Circuit panel said yesterday to President Trump. Now, how did these attorneys general deal with the issue of standing in this case in particular? Well, as you know, it's an open question whether states, rather than individuals, could bring a suit challenging President Trump's uh, executive order on immigration. And the Ninth Circuit said that the reason the states of Washington and Minnesota were allowed to bring that suit is that they basically have a job of running universities. And through their state universities, they hire professors from abroad, they bring in visiting speakers from abroad, they have students who come from abroad, and the court bought the argument that the states in that job, essentially as university proprietors, are affected by the immigration order, uh, and therefore can come into court, not only on their own behalf, but also on behalf of their students. And they went all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century to cite cases where schools were able to bring claims on behalf of their students, including a particularly important education case called Pierce Against Society of Sisters, which involved the question of whether a private religious school was allowed to teach German, which had actually been prohibited as part of the anti-German legislation at the time of World War I. And it's a famous case, and every law student reads it. Uh, the court ultimately said that you can teach your kids any damn thing you please. And the uh, Supreme Court cited this for the unusual proposition that the case was actually brought by the nuns who ran the school. Help me understand how many parallel tracks we have here. Uh, there's talk of this case now going to the, the Supreme Court. Of course, so we remember the, the, the night of this ban going into place. Uh, there was a decision in Brooklyn, uh, another one shortly followed in, in, in Massachusetts. How do, you, how do you make sense of all of this stuff? How does it all fit together? You're absolutely right. There are those cases, and then there are more. There's a Maryland case. There's another case uh, now in Dallas. You know, there, there are many, many approaches. If you were the, you know, if you were the Department of Justice right now, you'd be looking around the country and thinking that you're, you know, you're like the the swordswoman in Kill Bill. You've got attackers coming at you from all directions, and you've got to wield that sword, and you've got to keep on going after each and every one of them. That, unfortunately, is the reality. That's the legal reality from the perspective of the Department of Justice and the Trump administration because of our system of courts. We have the only person or the only institution, rather, that can impose uniformity on the federal courts is the Supreme Court. And you can't get to the Supreme Court right away. You've got to work your way up to the lower courts. And so that's what happens when an administration gets challenged. You know, something similar happened in the Obama administration when there were various challenges across the country to the Affordable Care Act. They happened all over the country, and they gradually made their way up to the Supreme Court. So that's the, that's the way the game is played. It's not how you or I would probably design the game from scratch, but that is how the federal court system has evolved in U.S. history, for better or worse. What's your sense of how equipped the Justice Department is to deal with, with that, to be a swordsman fighting so many adversaries? Here, remember how uh, on the night of this argument in Seattle, 
uh, that telephone argument. The, the lawyers who were assigned to the case were uh, removed from it because of their previous affiliation with Jones Day, and and uh, a backup, I think we can say, was was uh, shifted into to argue the case. Uh, now the Justice Department has a new Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, sworn in, confirmed, and sworn in. Uh, how how prepared, how ready is this Justice Department to defend this in so many venues? Well, under normal circumstances, my answer would be extremely ready. You know, the DOJ is not just an institution run from the top by an attorney general, though it, of course, is that. It's also got a huge, deep bench of excellent lawyers who are what are called career employees. That is to say, they're not political employees hired and fired by each new president. They're people who've devoted their lives and also their pocketbooks, because they make a lot less money in the Department of Justice than they would in private practice, to defending whatever positions the federal government takes and also to litigating issues on behalf of the government. And those professionals are, you know, ordinarily often the best people for the job. Um, you, also often, you almost never see the Department of Justice outsmarted or outgunned in their litigation. What makes this case a little different is that, in a way, the position of the administration is a bit of a moving target. And I'm trying to say this is objectively as I can, because of the way this executive order was rolled out without first being vetted through the usual DOJ channels, there wasn't a kind of fully developed defense of every last aspect of this order that you would usually have when a government plan was put out. And you've seen this in the court challenges, and it actually was an important factor in the Ninth Circuit's decision yesterday as well. So where we are this morning, do they go back and do it right, or do they barrel forward, a la the style of our president, go to the Supreme Court and confront Justice Kennedy and the rest? If the real goal was or is to get some version of the executive order in place that will survive judicial review and make it through the Supreme Court, and if I were saying they're advising the president on that, I would say if that's your goal, Go back and do it again. Write a new order that says it doesn't cover green card holders. It doesn't apply to anyone inside the U.S. You can keep on talking about these countries, but make it very clear that it's not a ban on Muslims. Take out the part that says that once we restart immigration, we're going to favor religious minorities, which means Christians. And then you have a very good chance of getting this to the courts. Without that, the odds seem very high that this will go down, both on its merits and also Mm. because, you know, the courts are just like anybody else. They don't like somebody stepping on their toes. They don't like the president stepping to them. And Justice Kennedy and the rest of the liberal justices, regardless of what they think of the executive order itself, are going to experience the White House statements as as a threat. A tweet crossing the transom just a moment ago from real Donald Trump, the president's personal account. He writes, citing lawfare... Uh, the National Security Law website, run by Benjamin Wittes, in cooperation with uh, the Brooklyn Institution, saying, Lawfare, remarkably, in the entire opinion, the panel did not bother even to cite this, the statute. Uh, he then writes, a disgraceful decision. I want to bring in Noah Feldman again. He is a professor of law at Harvard University and do they columnist have, for do the Do they Review. have Twitter 202 at Harvard Law? <laughs> we will have to ask. <laughs> Noah Feldman joining us here uh, on the Spectrum Enterprise phone line. Spectrum well, Enterprise nationwide, <laughs> fiber-based network and IT infrastructure solutions. No, I'll just have you react to this. Uh, you can tell us if there is Twitter 202 at Harvard Law. But uh, I guess the broader question here is we have the president weighing in very vociferously uh, on this decision. 
Well, I think it would be great to offer Twitter 202, but first I'd have to take it. I'm, I'm just learning how to use the darn thing myself. <laughs> uh, however, at this point, it's part of our, it's going to have to be part of the curriculum since the president's litigating this case on Twitter. You know, my short answer is, had I written the opinion, I think I would have spent a little bit more time addressing specifically the statute. And there are legal arguments to be made on both sides. The statute on one level does appear to give discretion to the president. On the other hand, the Supreme, the, the Ninth Circuit made it really clear that that, that statute is still trumped by the Constitution and that the president can only exercise his authority pursuant to the statute through the lens of not violating people's rights to due process and against religious discrimination. But yeah, if I had written it, I would have put a lot more discussion of those issues uh, into the opinion. That said, I do teach my students that the way to litigate a case is through your briefs and not through public communication primarily, because it tends to get the judges back up. And judges are human beings. And this is not historically the best way to convince judges to be sympathetic, namely to try to bully and insult them using Twitter. Maybe the president has some idea that's going to be different this time, but at least so far he's discovered that the courts are pretty different from other people whom you can sometimes pressure through external media. The courts tend to react the other way. We had Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs here a few minutes ago. She was talking about the, the lesson in civics we're getting right now. When you look at the, the uh, integrity of these three branches of government right now, are you, are you confident uh, in, in how, how great the integrity is? I would say that I'm enthusiastic but not utterly confident. The republic has been tested before, and our record is mixed. Sometimes, especially in wartime, uh, the executive branch has been able to get away with some pretty outrageous things in, in recent memory. You know, even great presidents like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, regardless of what you think about the New Deal, was great in terms of winning World War II, managed to suppress Japanese-American rights and intern a couple hundred thousand people. And the courts let him get away with it because they were loyal to the president. So, you know, we shouldn't pat ourselves on the back and say the courts will always work. On the other hand, we also have a consistent line of cases, some of which were cited by the Ninth Circuit, in which the courts have stood up to the president. And since we're not, I mean, we have wars going on in the world, but we're not in yeah. the kind of war that we were in in World War II, my guess is that the courts will sufficiently stand up to the president on this one. Give us a civics lesson, Professor, uh, finally here. Uh, where does Judge Roberts fit into the debate, the dialogue, the process, if we go to the Supreme Court very soon? You know, the Chief Justice, to my mind, is a follower of the great Justice Felix Frankfurter, who was significant because he started his career as a liberal, arguing for judicial restraint, which was a liberal position. And then when the court got a majority of liberals, the rest of them said, okay, well, let's, let's get beyond that judicial restraint business. Let's just start deciding cases the way we want to decide them. And he said, whoa, wait a minute, that's not how we got here. We believe in judicial restraint. And so then he became a conservative, and by the end of his career, he had no friends. I have the feeling that that is where Chief Justice Roberts himself may be, may be headed. He mm -hmm. believes in judicial restraint, and he's exercised it, more or less, when the chips were down in the important cases before him, including the Obamacare case. And that has made the conservatives very, very, very skeptical of him, yeah. even though he began as a conservative hero. And, you know, that's, to me, that's what a judicial hero is. It's mm -hmm. someone in the middle who sticks by his guns, no matter which side is against him. And I, I have faith in yeah. Chief Justice Roberts that that's the direction he's headed. It's not the way to be loved, but it is the way to be honored. Professor, we are honored that you've been with us here a number of days recently. Somehow I think we'll speak again soon. I should point out that Noah Feldman is the Felix Frankfurter ah. Professor of Law 
at Harvard Law School, bringing full circle uh, important law of the 20th century into the cacophony known as uh, February 2017. I urge you to consider Noah Feldman's Bloomberg View columns. They are exceptionally valued, and you can tell uh, David there he's killing himself not to have a political angle. And he wrote, he wrote two of them yesterday, sentence. two columns yesterday, so addressing yeah. uh, this, the Ninth Circuit decision, and then also the uh, the ethics concerns running yeah. Kellyanne Conway. And uh, There's been very good, very, very good coverage on other networks. I mean, we, we're very fortunate to have a lot of actual legal talent with background and depth pontificating. Unfortunately, wrapped around it is a fair amount of punditry, David. There is, so yeah. we, we stray away from that as much as we can. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member. SIPC.